You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Happy Father's Day to you. If you're uh, listening to all these good dads out here, I'm glad you're here. You want to know a little secret, a little church secret? Um, I don't tell this very often, um, but I want you to feel, so we're taking notes today, you all get extra points, because um, Father's Day is the least attended Sunday of the year. You know what the, one of the most attended Sundays is, at least top three? Mother's Day. So that just tells you just about everything you need to know on that deal, right? So anyways, I'm glad you're here. My name is Ross, I'm one of the pastors and I get the privilege of uh, being here on the South Campus most Sundays to open God's Word. So that's what we're going to do. If you will go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we are going to continue our study of Paul's letter to Timothy. It's his last letter that he wrote. He is in a hole in the ground, uh, chained to a Roman guard. He is an, under Roman uh, uh, is a Roman prison, and he is awaiting his execution. Nero, the emperor at the time, uh, with in just days, weeks, months from Paul finishing this letter, um, Paul will be executed. He'll have his head removed from his shoulders uh, by Nero. And so that is the gravity to which it is. And he's writing to a guy named Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the church that Paul planted. You can read about it in, uh, back in Acts, and he spent three years there. And in Acts 20, Paul says he taught the whole counsel of God. And then Timothy becomes the pastor after that. So those are big shoes to fill. Not only that, it's uh, the church tradition says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was likely a member of that church. So that's not intimidating or anything. And then, you have, can you imagine, like, you know, on, at Christmas, preaching that sermon? Um, I mean, really. I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think about stuff like that. And then you might have had John the Apostle, uh, church history says, was a member of that church in residence. So, uh, Timothy has his work cut out for him, and Paul is writing to him. He is, um, Paul's his mentor, Timothy's his protege, Paul is his spiritual father, Timothy is his spiritual son, and Paul loves Timothy dearly. And in fact, the very last words that Paul will write in his life will be to Timothy. And the very last charge that Paul will give to Timothy is to preach the Word. And so that's the passage we're looking at this morning. So if you would, I'm going to begin reading in in, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and uh, a a note here. So I'm going to read it. The words are going to be on the screen. The words on the screen are the ESV. The words I'm reading are the New American Standard Version, um, because this is is the the version I know know this passage in, and I, I just wanted to wanted to teach from this version this morning, so um, they'll look a little bit different, but you, they won't be, t- it'll be fine. You, you'll, you'll, you'll catch on, all right? 
So verse 1 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, here's what he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accord to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. It's the word of the Lord. Well, this is the charge, and the charge is simply, Timothy, uh, preach the word. Your, your role there at Ephesus, your role there amongst the people of God, the way that God has gifted you to serve the church in this capacity is to preach the word to the people of God, the word of God to the people of God. Now, every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit. Every believer has a calling. Every believer has a ministry in the body of Christ so that the body of Christ becomes whole. And Timothy's role, he was called by God, I think, specifically, particularly, maybe specially called by God to preach the Word. And so Paul wants to make sure that he does this. It's, a, it's interesting. You the charge is, um, uh, is, is, a, is a charge that has a punch to it, but he begins in verse 1 by giving us kind of the weight of the charge. If you'll look at it, it says this, I charge you in the presence of, and then notice what he says, of God and of Christ Jesus. So if you remember, I said, so Paul, he's in Rome, he's in a hole, he's in a pit, he's, I mean, it's not a great place to be. I mean, prisons here in America you know, by relatively, you know, the terms as you look out through history and particularly related to Paul, this is kind of a cakewalk. I'm not saying it's a great place to be. I'm just saying you do get three meals a day. You get to watch cable TV. I mean, there's that. This goes on. Paul is in a hole. There's a chain on him, maybe two. And on the other end of those chains are Roman guards that are well-fed, And would love nothing more than to put Paul out of his misery. And there's Paul. He's having to supply for his own needs, which he probably ate scarcely. He does not have a blanket to warm himself. In fact, next week you'll see he tells Timothy, Hey, Timothy, bring me a blanket. Winter's coming. It's a, it's a bleak and miserable place to be. But I want you to hear what he says. I charge you, Timothy, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. 
Not while I'm sitting in this hole, not while I'm chained to that Roman guard, not while I'm hungry, not while I'm cold, but I charge you, and right now I want you to know, Timothy, I am in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He wants Timothy to know he is too. You know, it's interesting. Paul wrote to the Romans. He wrote to the Romans. He's in Rome, but in the letter he wrote to the believers in Rome, he wrote, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wrote that to Rome. He's living it in Rome. Nothing separates you. He's living out that reality. Timothy, I know. I know you feel alone. I know that you're fearful. Because Timothy was. He, Paul had to write to him about that. I know, I know that people will say you're young. I know that you feel overwhelmed. But yet, Timothy, no, you are in God's presence. You're in the presence of Jesus. And then he tells us, about whom he is in the presence of. He tells us about Jesus. Notice what he says. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one who will appear. It is his kingdom. That's what he says in the rest there of verse 1. Jesus is the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And what he means is, is that when Jesus comes back at the resurrection, I mean, he, it's his second coming, and he come and he'll, he'll resurrect, the dead will rise first, and everybody will, will be transformed and go to glory that there will be a day, there will be some that are left alive when He returns. There will be a generation alive and well on planet earth that sees the coming of Jesus. He will judge the living, those, and the dead, those who have gone as He resurrects them. And it's interesting, there are two, at least two, but two clear sort of throne judgments of Jesus that we see presented to us in the New Testament. The first of those judgments is the great white throne. In Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, going to verse 15, what you see is that the living and the dead, everyone is raised to new life. In fact, Daniel tells us in chapter 12 of Daniel, everybody gets resurrected. Some are resurrected, to everlasting life and some resurrected to everlasting contempt. And in Revelation chapter 1, you see that. It is the great white throne. Jesus sits on it. Everyone comes before Him. And there are two uh, things that get opened up there at that judgment. There is what is known as the books. And in the books are written everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly, every good thing you've done, every, every bad thing you've done known and unknown, there are no secrets there. And then there is the book, called the book of life, called elsewhere the book of the Lamb, the book of the blood of the Lamb. And the way that that judgment goes, that the great white throne is you come forward before and, the, and, 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 and you are judged now based upon the record of your life. Except for those that are believers, if your name is found in the book of life. So come up and your name, here it is. There it is, book of life. 
What is decreed on you, what is the judgment laid, is well done, good and faithful servant. Because your name is written in the book of life. The life of Jesus counts for your life. And so it is proclaimed, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if your name is not written there, then, then you're left with the other books that are open. All your good and all your bad. You see, there are a lot of people that believe that, you know what, by the end of the life, here's what really matters, is that I've done more good than bad, that I am better than at least ten people I can name without taking a breath. What matters is, is what people thought of me. What matters is, is how charitable I was. What matters is, is how I ended the life. What matters is that, listen, I did good while I was here. And listen, God's a God of justice and He loves everybody. And if I did more good than bad, God's going to let me in. And I am telling you, so many people operate with that theology in their hearts. They functionally operate as though the scales will be weighed at the end and somehow you will end up on the right end of things. But I am here to tell you, no one survives that judgment. Because the standard is not the ten people you can name without breathing. The standard is not how much good you did in this life. The standard is the absolute righteous perfection and holiness and eternity of the God of the universe displayed, imaged in, made manifest in His Son, Jesus Christ. And nobody survives that. Except your name be written in the book of life. And it is written there, by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, for those that believe who Jesus is, the Son of God, what He did, that He took your sin, He took your sin, had it laid upon Him. He became sin. And then He died your death. He became the object of the wrath of God laid in a grave for three days and rose again to new life so that you can live. And that's how you survive the great white throne. There's another judgment, and this is the judgment of believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 calls it the Bema seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we know it as the, as the, um, the throne of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. Here's how it's described. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. He's writing to believers here. And what he's talking about here is that Ephesians 2.8-9, For you saved by grace, through faith in Christ. This is not of your own doing, lest nobody boast. It is a gift of God. Verse 10 follows on and says, now that you've been saved, you now get to walk in. You now have been uh, uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to walk in what God created for you to do, the good works God created for you to do from before the foundations of time. You get to now walk in what God created for you. And it will be that judgment. Did 
you walk in the good works God created for you from before the earth was made. The idea is that you're saved. Then you're indwelt by the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to walk in that, that which God has for you, for you to become who God has created you as a new creation to be. And the great thing is at the end of the day, you get rewarded for that as though you did something. There'll be a lot of believers that squandered that. You never, you'll never have walked in all of what God had for you. Some of you may not walk in any of what God has for you. And I think that'll be a great sadness at that judgment. At least for a moment until in Revelation 21, we find he wipes away every tear. These are some of the tears. For some of you, it'll be like he writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day, the day will disclose it. That day, the judgment day. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I have written out in my Bible beside this the smoking butt verse. You know, you'll be there. You'll be safe. You're going to smell like smoke. James 3.1 says it'll also be where the teachers are judged. Not many of you, he says, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, you, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It probably comes at the end for all to see. Followed only by the judge of the elders of the church. Hebrews 13.17, for they, it says, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They'll give an account for their shepherding of you. Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, that's who it is. And He will also, He will appear, He says. It's evident. Listen, Paul still believes that Jesus is coming back. He writes early in his letters to the Thessalonians, he writes to them, hey, listen, Jesus is coming back. This is what it's going to be like, the trumpets and the angels, you know, all of that stuff. And then we, we have... We make movies about that and different kinds with different conclusions. But that's when Jesus is coming back. Paul likely, it may be that he thought when he was writing Thessalonians early in his ministry, that he would be there. He would see the return of Jesus. But now he is sitting in a hole. He knows he's about to be executed. And it is very likely he doesn't think he's going to see Jesus appear. But notice this. He still believes it. He still hopes in it. He still longs. It. In fact, in verse 8, he will say, There is a crown that awaits everyone who loves the appearing of Christ. And not only is he the judge of the living and the dead, not only is he the one that will come back, he is the one whose kingdom it is. And he will come not as a humble Galilean peasant, but he will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will establish his rule that will rule over all of the nations. 
He is the Son of Man of Daniel. He is the King. He is the Judge. He is coming. Live your life in light of His presence now. Live your life with a view of what is to come. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. And then he says, in the midst of all this, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, and reprove, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So it's, it's, it's the Word of God. It's, it's the Word which God has spoken. And Paul, he didn't need to specify it any further. He's already talked about it. Chapter 1, he talks about the deposit that's been entrusted. In, in um, this fourth chapter, it's the same thing as sound teaching, same thing as the truth. It's the same thing as faith. It's the Old Testament Scriptures. It is the New Testament Scriptures that are God-breathed. They are profitable, which Timothy has known from his childhood, together with the teaching of the apostle. He's followed it, he's learned it, and he's firmly believed it. And here he's saying, listen, you're not just responsible to hear it, Timothy. You're not just responsible to believe it. You're not just responsible to obey it. Not just guarding it from those that would want to make it false. Not just those, uh, you're not just to suffer for it and continue in it. You're to do all those things. But now, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach it to others. Because it's the good news of salvation for sinners. Proclaim it like a herald in the marketplace. Lift up your voice, Timothy, without fear and without an eye to please people around you. Make it known. There's this urgency, you know? Be ready, he says. You could literally translate that. Be urgent. Timothy, you're handling matters of life and death. There is an urgency to this. It is the announcing of the sinner's plight under the judgment of God, Timothy. It is announcing the saving action of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is summoning men and women and children to repent and believe, which simply means that you hear God's word and you're under the conviction and you know, you know what? I know that about me. I know that I'm a sinner and there is nothing I can do to repair myself. There is nothing I can do to fix what is broken so down deep inside of me. Not to mention the string of things I have left in the wake of my life. And I Need a Savior. And it's not anything I can buy or sell or taste or touch. It is the risen Jesus come from God. That's what you're announcing. Richard Baxter said, whatever you do is old Puritan. Let the people see that you're in good earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale or patching up a gaudy oration. Here's this, listen. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seemeth not to mean as he speaks or to care much whether his request is granted. Timothy, 
You're asking people to set aside those things they love the most for something greater. As Paul said, I count it all loss. It is all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. In season, out of season, Timothy, you're on duty at all times, convenient or inconvenient. I remember, I, I don't have time for this story, but that's okay. Um, I, I remember one of the first times in a leadership role, it's been a long time ago, um, I was called to lead adults in this Christian ministry to open God's Word and to say something to them. And I, um, I thought I was going to be you know, clever and relevant and um, you know, innovative. So I decided that what I wanted to say, I, I could also say or illustrate from Winnie the Pooh. I'm not kidding you. So, I opened up Winnie the Pooh. I read a couple of things, and we laughed a little, and I made a poignant argument at the end, and something Christopher Robin did, and we're, you know, we're supposed to do it, and I really felt good about myself, actually. Until my supervisor, John Sharp, who'd been sitting in the back of the room, grabs me, as though like the house were on fire or something, drags me into the other room and says, what in the world are you doing? So I'm inspiring people. He says, you made me want to throw up. Your charge is not to give them. Preach the word. I don't even own Winnie the Pooh anymore. I renounce Winnie the Pooh. They can read it among the flames for all I care, so kidding but notice so there's not just an urgency there's also there is there is a relevance look at what he says to to uh to reprove which means to convince to, to rebuke to exhort it suggests these three different ways of doing it but god's word he already said in chapter 3 verse 16 it's profitable for a variety of situations for a variety of ministries in all different contexts it speaks to different men and women in different situations and so you, you have to be skillful in your use of it. Sometimes it's an argument. Sometimes it's a reproof. Sometimes it's an appeal. Sometimes people are tormented with doubts. You open God's Word, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and you, you help them see the convincing Word of God. Sometimes people are so caught up in and dragged down by and overwhelmed with the sin in their life that you open God's Word and you let them hear the rebuke. And sometimes there are others that are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged. And God's Word does this and more. And that's how it's relevant. That's how we apply it in ways that are relevant. There's also a patience. Notice this. Be, you teach, preach the word 
with patience, he says, although, listen, there's this urgency. We want people to respond. We want them to hear the word. There is an unfailing patience in waiting for it. We must not resort to human pressure techniques. The goal is not to get somebody to walk an aisle and make a contrived decision. The responsibility is to faithfully preach the word, and the results of that proclamation are the result are the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. We can afford to wait patiently for him. If you go to the beginning of Acts and you see Peter preach, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. His first sermon, he preaches, it's lights out, it's all of like five verses, I think. 2,000 people come to saving faith in Jesus. And it doesn't take you very long. You get into action. You think, man, well, that's the pattern. That's You open your mouth. You speak the word. You proclaim the gospel. People get saved. Until you get to chapter 8 and you see, you see Stephen. 7, 8. He's one of the deacons. Beware deacons. And he preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament. He gives the whole scope of the theology of the Old Testament. And at the very end, he doesn't get 2,000 converts. You know what he gets? 2,000 stones aimed at his head. And yet the record includes, at the very end of that, and Saul, who we know as Paul, the writer of this letter, was standing by giving his approval watching it. And it's not very long after that till he's on the road to Damascus to go persecute more Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I have to think that it's the faithful preaching of Stephen, of the gospel of Jesus. And then when Jesus appears on the road to Damascus, Paul is able to say, Lord, because he knows who he is. And I might argue that the sermon of Stephen changed the Western world forever. It led to the conversion of Saul, now known as Paul. We can be patient. We can trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do when God's Word is faithfully open. And then notice there's an intelligence. We're not only to preach the Word, but we're to teach it rather to preach it with all teaching, maybe how you could translate that. To preach it with all teaching so that it's understandable, so that it's intelligible, so that it makes sense, so that we understand what the author is writing to the audience under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because that is what God's revealing. And that's all we're after. That's all we want to know. And We trust that God's Word will will do and accomplish what it is intended, intended to do, as Isaiah 55 says. You know, during the days of the Protestant Reformation, someone asked Martin Luther to explain his amazing success. You know, I mean, the message of uh, uh, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that message caught on, spread like wildfire throughout Europe. And, 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 and Luther, you know, they was, Luther, how, you, you changed history, Luther. I mean, how, how did you... How did you do it? You know what Luther said? I love Martin Luther. Love him. You know what he said? He said, well, I slept in my bed and I drank beer with friends in Wittenberg. The Word of God did it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. 
Timothy, believe that. Preach the word. Now, quickly, will you walk with me quickly through three, four, five, six, seven, and eight? I, if we, I mean quickly, all right? I'm not going to let you linger, all right? So here we go. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, he says. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into mist. Notice it begins with the word for. So, so because, this is the reason, Timothy, preach the word because there's the the necessity of it, the necessity of the charge. Listen, the days are coming and they're already upon us, Timothy. They are going to get darker. They are going to become more calloused. People do not want to hear the truth. He states it negatively and positively. They'll not endure sound teaching, but they will accumulate teachers to suit their own likings, their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander into myths. In other words, they can't stand the truth and they're not going to listen to it. Instead, they're going to find teachers who agree with their own perspectives, their own way of thinking, their own ways that they are determined to to continue to wander off in rebellion against God. That's who they're going to find to listen to. It all has to do with the ears. It shows up twice here. If if we're reading it in the Greek, you'd see ears twice. And it, it speaks about very specifically, this pathological condition called itching ears. An itch for novelty. One writer describes it, the expressions, a figure of speech, for that kind of curiosity which looks for something interesting and spicy. This itching's relieved by messages of new teachers. In fact, what the people do is they stop their ears against the truth and they open them to any teacher that will relieve their tickling by the scratching of it. And what do they reject? They reject sound teaching. They reject truth. They reject what they... uh, They reject all that because they prefer their own passions. They would rather believe a myth, a fable, than the truth. And then he talks about the posture. That's the reason. Here's the posture, Timothy. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How's Timothy to react to all this? I mean, if this is the way it is and people don't want to listen to truth, maybe, listen, we should just be quiet. We should just mind our own business. We should keep our peace. Somebody wants to know, we'll be ready to tell them in season, out of season. But, I mean, what are we supposed to do? And Paul will say, no, I'll tell you what you do. Preach the word. Herald it. Stand up and proclaim it. He says, but as for you, Timothy, this is what you do. John Calvin, back in his day, the more determined men become to despise the teachings of Christ, the more zealous should godly believers be to assert it and more strenuous their efforts to preserve it in its entirety. Preach the word, Timothy. Because in verse 6, Paul will say these concluding things to him. He has some other things to say, but here is probably the most intimate. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is coming. Speaking about his dying, being poured out. His departure, 
It's the word he uses for, it's the word used in, in other contexts, in other ways, other writings, to speak of a ship setting sail. He's done all he's going to do at this port. The anchor's been set up, the sail has been put up, the wind is ready to go, he's ready to go to the next place. Timothy, I'm, I'm leaving, the, the preacher is leaving, but the preaching is going to continue. The, the minister's time has come to an end, but ministry will continue, Timothy. It will continue with you. This morning we had this great privilege in the first hour to ordain, to ministry, Kim Prothrow. It was a sweet time we had this morning and got to recount kind of her story and her journey of how God has led her and called her to ministry, a lifetime of ministry. And her training and the experiences that God has brought her through to uniquely gift her and call her and use her for a lifetime. We were in the, I was telling this morning, we were in the ordination council. And we had this, she was talking about it and she was reading this book within the last couple of years. And it was talking about passion. You know, everybody wants to say, you know, t- tell me about your passion. Are you following your passion? You know, it's a good buzzword. You know, what's your passion? I don't, I don't know. She said it's always been a confusing thing to her. So she read this, and it, it said, you know, with a, really the origin of that word, where that word came into use in our languages, was a word used to describe the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, you know the movie title, The Passion of the Christ. Which means, here's what passion is. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to give your life for? What are you willing to say, I will set everything else aside to follow you where you lead me? Paul says, I've done that. My time is up. My life has been poured out as a drink offering. It's your turn, Timothy. You know what? It may be some of your turns. Maybe you feel the call of God. Men, women, boys, girls. God may be stirring your heart to call you into a lifetime of ministry. That's his present reality. His past faithfulness, he recounts. He says, listen, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. If you were to look back through Paul's writings, he always talked about that. I'm fighting the good fight. Christianity, fight the good fight. Finish your race. You know, as you race, run run as though to win. Keep the faith. These were Paul's aim, his striving, his goal in life and ministry. And here at the end of his life, it was worth more than anything else that ever came along in his life. More than anything he could have accumulated, anything he could have had, anything he, he could have counted to finish well meant more than anything. Old professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, did an exhaustive study of the men and women of the Bible. He concluded there were about a hundred um, 
detailed biographies in the Bible of men and women, his conclusion was two-thirds of those ended in, in failure. Their lives did not end well, whether immorality, whether they were uh, caught up in, in, in sin, they, you know, they, they, they drifted from the faith, they, they were caught up in the world around them, two-thirds of them. And he was teaching at this weekend conference on this very thing, and a guy named John Weck, Dr. John Weck, who was a, one of his students, had him on the stage at the end of the conference and said, hey, you know, had him up there, you know, kind of a question and answer, you know, let the guard down. And he says, Dr. Hendricks, he says, um, listen, I just want you to know, Prof, everybody called him Prof. Prof, I wanted you to know you impacted my life. You impacted the lives of countless others, and you've remained true to your family and your faith and, your, and everything you taught. And just wanted you to know, just wanted to thank you. Tell you, I praise God for you. There was this long silence, like an awkward silence there. As Hendricks gathers himself and he looks at John with a tender word, and he says, John, just pray that I finish well. How are you going to finish? Finish well, he says. And here's the future hope. Hence, therefore, is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, verse 8, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only for me, but all who have loved is appearing. The word righteousness is the same word as justification. He probably means both aspects of it here. The, the crown of justification, which means I will be crowned, I will be in the presence of the Lord. I'm looking forward to Jesus, not because of anything I've done in my life, but because of what He has done. He is the one who has justified me. And I can't wait to see Him. And He also probably means there's a righteousness will be decreed about him, no matter what Nero will say about him, no matter what Nero will say. Listen, Paul's guilty. And Jesus says, no, Paul's mine. And Nero will remove his head from his body. And you know what Jesus is going to do? At the resurrection, he's going to put it back on his body. Resurrect him to a glorified, and then he's going to put a crown on his head crown of righteousness and all of those who long for his appearing will all receive the crown I'll end this way and then we'll sing we'll get out of here go do Father's Day stuff whatever that is I'll call you Kelly you can tell me what to do all right I had the great privilege of getting to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I mean it. I, there wasn't a day I was ever on that campus that I wasn't grateful for it. I stumbled upon it, and, and, and I'm so thankful for it. I hear there are other good seminaries. Um, I've heard, but I don't know. There are. But at Dallas Seminary, it, it was founded by a man named Lewis Berry Schaefer, and um, he loved the Lord, and he loved... God's Word, and he founded it at a time when God's Word was really, um, really was in a place in the, in not just the public square, but even in the square of the church where it needed to be defended. And it, you drive up to Dallas Seminary, and there's this huge marble stone, you know, this, this almost this like wall there at the very, you know what it says? It says, preach the Word. It's like the motto of Dallas Seminary. They, and they, he, he was 
convinced that, uh, that his generation, like every generation before and every generation to come, needed to be equipped to preach God's word, needed to know how to handle it, needed to, to be so overcome with it and overwhelmed by it. Believe that it was the hope for the world. And he did. In the old tales of back in the day, and um, they had chapel every day, Tuesday through Friday was when school was held. And on Friday, chapels, uh, while Schaefer was the president, and even when he was still alive, he would conclude the chapel this way. The men were there all in their suits and their ties jammed into a very humble-looking chapel, probably with no air conditioner. You can imagine the, the hot days and the hot months. And these men, at the time it was only men back in the day, but they were, would go off on the weekends and they would go to churches. They would serve in ministries and then they'd come back to class on Tuesday. Monday would be a day of rest. And he would gather the men and he would have them stand. And they would sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name. And it would build and it would build until at the very end it was like, you know, they were singing at the top of their lungs and echoed throughout the chapel. And they'd come to the end and Schaefer would stand up. And he would say, okay now, men, go and preach the Word and give them something to believe. Preach the Word. And that's not just for pastors. It's not just for seminary students. It is a charge to every believer. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit. Every one of us is called to give an answer for the hope that we have inside, the hope of salvation inside. Every one of us is given the ministry of the Word of God. The God-breathed, inspired, profitable Word. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Let us be a congregation that goes in all the very varied ways that we would be called to do it. To give them something to believe. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you. For